back to Revelation 4, you've got to admit that's quite a scene, isn't it? It was just read. It's fantastic. It's, it's spectacular. It's, uh, it's uh, otherworldly. It makes me ask the question, how often do we think about that? Do we think about heaven? How often do we think about stepping into glory? Stepping into paradise? Closing our eyes for the last time in this world and then opening them for the first time in the next? Some people think about it often. We heard a story this morning of a family who lost a daughter who no doubt are thinking along these lines. Sometimes we're forced into thinking about heaven and what comes next. You may recognize the name John Owen, some of you. He is, uh, or he was, a 17th century Puritan theologian, and he thought about heaven often. And I want to read you a quote of something he wrote describing heaven, and more specifically, the journey to heaven, uh, and what it's like to prepare for that. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it really sets the stage for what I want to talk about today in Revelation 4. So if you'll indulge me, this is what John Owen says. Suppose many set out to a far country where there is a place of rest and a rich inheritance awaiting them. Some only have a vague idea about that far country. They are so busy about other things that they have no time to think of that land to which they are going. They only have vague hopes and vague expectations. But others make every effort to find out all about that far country. The voyage proves long and tiring. Their difficulties are many and the dangers great. There is nothing to encourage them or lift up their spirits and give them determination to continue with their journey, but their thoughts of the peace and the riches which await them. Those who have thought little of where they are going and what awaits them will be tempted to despair, to give up to turn back. They have nothing to cheer them on and nothing to encourage them to go on determined against all difficulties. But those who have taken the trouble to find out all they can about the place to which they are traveling will be spurred on by glorious hopes. Owen concludes, it is the same with our journey to heaven. Vague ideas of heaven will not encourage us to persevere through all dangers and difficulties. Vague ideas will not excite in us a spiritual, refreshing hope. But when we meditate on future glories as we ought, then the grace of hope will thrive and will be of inestimable benefit in making us spiritually minded. Owen here is describing a truth that I think many of us know to be true, and that is a, a real, true accurate picture of heaven is what can give us hope for the future and power for the present. But it has to be accurate, right? It can't be blurry. It can't be vague. Because if it's vague, then we really have nothing to cling to. Nothing that can help us persevere through tough times like the things we heard about this morning and many, many others that many of you have experienced. We have to be exact. And the trouble that we have today in our day and age, that the challenge that you and I face is wading through all the inaccurate speculations and opinions and flat-out deceptions of what heaven is actually like. And they bombard us from every form of media. Everyone's got an opinion about what heaven is like, don't they? And for us, that creates a, a, a massive pool of possibilities. That creates a vague picture and thus takes away our hope. 
and our passion and our anticipation because we're not really sure what it's going to be like. The thing is, as believers, if we want to have the hope that John Owen and many others are talking about here, if we want to have a clear picture of heaven, we have to know where to look. And I don't care if someone has claimed to be there, to have been there and to can describe it. They were there for 90 minutes or whatever else. I want to say, if you remember nothing else from this morning, is that the only reliable source, the only reliable source to clear up the confusion and give us that exact picture of heaven, the only reliable source, and you won't be surprised to hear me say this, is the Word of God. It's the only reliable source. And we have to be determined in that. We have to cling to the reality that, that this Word given to us by God is sufficient. It's enough. It's what He wanted us to know. And we measure all other testimonies, all other descriptions, all other opinions by this. If it doesn't line up, we throw it out. Because it only serves to steal the hope that our God so badly wants us to enjoy. In the pages of Scripture, God himself describes his home. And it's quite a view. And this morning, I want us together to look at, at one such description, the one that was just read for us, and kind of unpack it a little bit in Revelation chapter 4. And therein, find the hope that we all so long for and that God wants us to enjoy. It's, it's, we're going to allow Scripture to kind of crystallize a little bit our view of heaven. So if you haven't already, please turn to Revelation 4, uh, the passage that was just read for us. As Christians, examining the Apostle John's vision of this heavenly throne room, we need to understand that we are given the privilege of picturing our future in the present. He says, picture this. This is where you will one day be. I want you to have a clear picture in your minds of, of where you're headed and where I now live. So we're, we're invited to picture our future in the present at this moment. And, and, and the reality is that, that what is described in Revelation 4 is both an already and a not yet, or a not yet seen reality. So in other words, what's described in Revelation 4 is happening as we sit here. As we are here gathered for worship, as we sing, as we pray, as we give our offerings to the Lord, as we worship in our way, what we read in Revelation 4 is going on right now. But it's also our future home. So you see how it's this tension. It's, a, and it's an already and yet it's a not yet for us at the very same time. And we're being invited to picture our future in the present. And so to that end, I just want to highlight three truths for us this morning from this chapter of Scripture. Three truths that can help us crystallize our mental image of where we are headed as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is this. That God is enthroned. Right now, as we sit here, the Almighty God of the universe is sitting on his throne right now. In verse 1, John is invited into the heavenly throne room. It says, After these things I looked, John says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. This voice like a trumpet, if you were to go back to chapter 1, we'll learn that it's the glorified Jesus Christ who died, was buried, rose again, ascended to the Father, and now he's speaking with John. And he says, come up here, I'm going to show you what comes next. And once he's in heaven, what's the first thing that arrests John's attention? Verse 2. Immediately, as I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And so we see here that John's gaze, when he steps over that threshold, cannot help but fall upon 
this centerpiece, this, this throne. As we can all imagine, and as we will soon see working through this text, there are a lot of great things to look at in heaven. A lot of wonderful things, a lot of things that would grab our attention and keep our gaze locked on them, but John doesn't mention any of those things at first. He can't help but mention, mention this throne. It is so breathtaking that his, his gaze is just fixed upon it. And as you can imagine, this is not just some fancy chair that grabs his attention. It's not just that. As we went through, if we were to take time and go through all of Scripture, we could build a biblical theology of what this throne in heaven represents. Because it's much more than a fancy, ornate piece of furniture. It's what it represents that's important, that grabs John's attention and won't let it go. This throne we read in Scripture is one of unmatched power and authority. If you think back to the book of Job, the opening chapter, in verse 6, it says that one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So here's the picture. Angels and Satan himself come to present themselves before the throne of God. These are not the chubby babies with wings that we see in Renaissance art. Angels, every time they show up in Scripture, are terrifying, fearful creatures. And here they are, powerful as they are, and Satan coming to present themselves before the throne of God. It is unmatched power and authority in this throne room. Sometimes today, we make the mistake of thinking that um, Satan and God are two sides of the same coin that they're opposites, that they're playing this cosmic game of chess or tug-of-war for the souls of humanity. And it's a nail-biter, and we don't know which way it's going to go. But that is not true, is it? That's not the picture that Scripture paints. God has no equal. He has no equal. He is not the opposite of Satan. He is far greater than Satan. And Satan here in Job chapter 1 comes to present himself uh, before the Lord, as an infinitely lesser being that he is, him and the angels. They present him themselves before God's mercy. And so we see here that the throne is one of, of inestimable power and authority. This is not just some fancy chair that John steps into heaven and, and arrests his attention. No, this is something like he's never seen before, and we have never seen before. The heavenly throne is also one of majesty and honor. In describing Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes that, and you know the verse well, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then what happened? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Son of God accomplished his mission perfectly, and his reward, to sit next to the throne of God. So here we have the throne of God, not just a fancy chair. This is a place of unmatched power, authority, majesty, and honor. And one more. God's throne is also one of perfect justice. In Psalm 9, verse 7, it says, The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And in Psalm 89, verse 14, the psalmist adds, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's a place of unmatched, perfect justice. And praise the Lord for that. We look around our world, and we ache for justice, don't we? There's so much injustice out there. 
it's hopeful to know that we serve a God of perfect justice and he sits on a, on a throne that its foundation is perfect righteousness and justice. And one day that will be enacted. And we anticipate that and we look forward to it. So this is not just a fancy chair that, that John is looking at. Uh, and we could go on and on describing all the characteristics, all the things that this throne represents. But the point is this. What John is privileged to see in that moment, you and I are invited to picture right now. That's why he's writing this. So we can picture what it is like to step before the throne of God. God is currently enthroned. Where we're from, in Swift Current, at the beginning of April, you may have heard out here, there was a big accident just north of us in a town called Humboldt. Um, an entire junior hockey team was driving to a game. There was a massive accident with an 18-wheeler. Almost the entire team was wiped out. Teenagers, mostly. As you can expect, that, that rocked our province, our town. Um, a lot of people in our town knew some of those kids. And they were kids. And if you watch the vigil that was held just a couple of days later, they had a chaplain of the Humboldt Broncos team. His name was Sean Brandau. And he all of a sudden was thrust from relative obscurity as a pastor in a small town, Saskatchewan, that some of you have never heard of, to an international spotlight in a heartbeat. And he stood before this weeping town and the prime minister and all of these people opened the word of God and he was crying he said, I don't have all the answers. But two things I know. God is on his throne, and he's with the brokenhearted. God is on his throne, and he's with the brokenhearted. The second one cannot be true if the first is not true. Who cares if he's with the brokenhearted if he's not on his throne? But he is on his throne. It's that same throne that John sees here as he steps into heaven. God is currently enthroned. And this majestic throne, it represents the height of power and authority and justice and righteousness and everything that is good and pure in this entire universe. And John laid his eyes upon it and tries to describe it for us here. And the beauty of the enthroned God is beyond description, as we would expect. As we read on, we get the sense that, that the words that John chooses here, while they're accurate, they are woefully inadequate to capture what he's seeing. Verse 3, And he who is sitting... Was, was like a jasper stone. Notice the word like. He's, he's comparing, it was like a jasper stone and, and a, a sardius in appearance. Verse 5. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a, a sea of glass, like crystal. You can almost hear his mind racing to find something in this world to compare what he's seeing to so we can understand it. He's trying to relay what he's seeing to us millennia later. These gems that he likens the one sitting on the throne to, this jasper and sardius, or you may have carnelian in your translation. These are gems that are, are beautiful and expensive. And if we go on to chapter 21 of Revelation, we see John going back to that well again to use that same description to describe the new Jerusalem and the foundations of the new city. It's like Jasper, I guess, or, or Carnelian. I don't even know what to say, except it's beautiful and it looks expensive. And we find out that actually the foundations of the city are made of these expensive gems. 
I don't think you typically use expensive gems to build the foundation, as long as it's strong, right? But in the New Jerusalem, spare no expense. And he goes back to this trying to describe this beauty that he's taking in. That God is on his throne right now, and it is breathtakingly beautiful. It's like nothing we've ever seen. And yet, while God is currently enthroned in heaven, as we sit here right now, as he sits on his throne, in all his beauty and splendor, and while we sit here trying to strain our imaginations, trying to picture what that would be like, the truth is, we will one day see him. Each and every one of us who fall asleep in the Lord, who put their faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, will see what John saw. We will stand where John stood, and we won't have to strain our imaginations any longer. We will see him like, oh, Jasper, Sardis, okay, I get it. We will one day see him, each and every one of us. In Romans chapter 14, verse 11, we see this truth. As surely as I live, says the Lord. That's pretty sure. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every knee will see me. Every set of eyes will look upon me, just like my servant John does here. We will one day see him. We will one day stand there in awe. We will be met with the same task as John, trying to take in a beauty and a purity that the greatest mind on earth could never even imagine, much less describe. And we will see him enthroned. We're pictured here to imagine our future in the present. Try to think about it. Close your eyes if you have to. What will that look like to finally set my eyes upon the one that I've dreamed about? The one that saved me? The one I pray to? The one that in the darkness of my life sometimes I question is even there? I know better than that, but sometimes I wrestle with that. And yet knowing that one day I will lock my eyes on that throne just like John did. We should feel the hope building in us. Anticipation to remove all vagueness and set our eyes upon it. Well, not only is God enthroned right now, but according to this text, he's also encircled. He's encircled. When, when he stepped into heaven, John's eyes, as we said, were immediately locked on the throne of God. But like looking at a bright light, eventually your eyes adjust, right? And, and he's looking at this throne, and eventually he starts to look around heaven. And he starts to notice the other things in the throne room. And what he describes as we go through this text are, are essentially concentric circles emanating out from the throne, radiating out like a, a holy ripple effect moving out from this centerpiece. Second half of verse 3. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Note that word, around, or encircled. John will go back to that same word over and over again as we go through this text. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Now where is the most popular rainbow in Scripture? Genesis chapter 9, right? Noah comes out of the ark. God puts a bow in the sky to mark his covenant with Noah. And here we are near the end of Scripture, and we see a rainbow around the covenant-keeping God, around his throne, emanating from him, encircling his throne. Verse 4, we see another layer of these concentric circles. Around, there it is again, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in 
white garments, and gold crowns were on their heads. So now we see God encircled by 24 ruling elders. These are are glorified, purified beings with power. How do I know that? Well, they're dressed in white garments. As you go through Revelation, all the beings in heaven are dressed in white because they're purified, they're glorified to be in God's presence. And how do I know they have power and authority? Well, they're sitting on thrones. And they have crowns of reward on their head. And so these are, these are beings with, with power and prestige, and yet they are sitting around encircling the almighty enthroned God. And dropping down in the text, we find another layer around God's throne. In the second half of verse 6. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. So here we see God encircled not only by the rainbow and these ruling elders, but by these four living creatures. And they are fantastic beasts, otherworldly beings that apparently only exist around the throne of God. That's where they... That's where they live, that's where they were made, and they're doing exactly what they were called to do. If we flip to chapter 5, verse 11, we can add yet another layer of these concentric circles. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, And then I looked, John said, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands So here we see the emerald shimmering rainbow. We see these ruling elders. We see these incredible, fantastic beasts. And now we see countless numbers, armies of these fearful, powerful angels all encircling the throne of God. It's quite a scene. And John shows us here that not only is God enthroned in heaven right now, but he is encircled on that throne. And the picture that John wants us to to, to have formulate in our minds is that that of the Almighty God being the center of all things. As these things emanate out, what's at the bullseye of the target? It's Him. He is the center of all things. From Him, everything emanates. He is the bullseye. Around Him are the ruling elders, the emerald rainbow, the living creatures, the armies of angels. But they're all focused on Him. He's the epicenter. He's the hub. He's the nucleus. And He's the heart. And while here on earth, and no doubt you've noticed this, there's a battle raging for truth, for certainty, for conviction. We feel it even in our own lives, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our country. What's my purpose? What is this life all about? That battle rages on and on. In heaven, there is no such battle going on. Everything and everyone there knows exactly what this is all about. It's all about Him, the center of all things. We struggle here, but we won't always. It's all about Him, and they know it. And while God is currently encircled in heaven, we need to understand that we will one day stand there. Not only is He enthroned and we'll see Him one day, but He is encircled, and we will one day take our place among those concentric circles. We flip over to chapter 7, verse 11. Sorry, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. 
After these things, John says, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, there it is again, and palm branches were in their hands. This is the redeemed. These are believers at the end of days, gathered around the throne amidst those circles. And we will one day take our place among those circles, around the throne of God. We will join that uncountable multitude with our eyes clear and our focus undivided. In that time, we will understand what it is all about, each one of us. There will be no more questions. We will have clarity and conviction and excitement and freedom, the likes of which we do not know right now. We will no longer be tempted to stray. Because why would we? When we set our eyes on that beauty and how captivating that is, all the temptations of this world that at one time beckoned us away from the Lord, said he's not as great as he promises to be. Come over here. I'll satisfy your needs. And it whispers to us. And right now, we still battle to not listen. We still wonder if it's actually true. And so we stray. That will not be the case in heaven. When we set our eyes upon that throne, we will never again be tempted by anything out here. We know it's a lie. There's nothing to compete with this ever again as we stand encircled around the throne of God. We should picture this. The freedom that that would be. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired. I'm tired of the Christian life at times. I'm tired of wrestling with doubts. I'm tired of wrestling with my own sin. I'm tired of waking up every day knowing I have to put on the armor of God and, and extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. I'm tired of doing battle with my flesh, that man that Paul writes about that's still battling within me. I'm tired of it. I cannot wait to be free and experience the rest that's promised in Hebrews. I cannot wait to stand in those circles and just sigh and say, I never have to worry about that again. How good will that be? We've got to picture it. Throw out those vague ideas of what this is like. Picture how great that's going to be. As I said, I love being here with my family. I love being here with you all, but I would rather be there. Hopefully you're not offended. That, that freedom, that beauty, it gives me hope. I trust it does for you as well. It gives us hope for the future, and it also gives us power for the present, no? To endure endure the sin struggles, to endure tragedy. Well, God is enthroned, and he is encircled, certainly. But that's not all. We find this, um, this text tells us that God is also exalted. He's currently being worshipped in a way that he truly deserves. Without reservation, without competition, without equal, he's being worshipped with total adoration and joy. Verse 8, back to chapter 4. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. What are they doing? Why are they existing there? It says, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So why do these creatures even exist? They exist to endlessly worship God. And they worship him because he's holy. Because he is completely other. He's not like us, and so he deserves worship and adoration. 
They worship him for his sovereignty. He is the Lord God Almighty. He can do all things, and he is on his throne, and he reigns, and he is the now and future king. And so they worship him. And they worship him for his eternality. That he was, and he is, and he is to come. He doesn't have, an, he doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an end. Earlier in this book, he describes himself, introduced himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the two bookend letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. I am all in all, he says. And you'll remember famously when he speaks to Moses in Exodus 3, and, and Moses says, who should I say is sending me? He says, tell them I am. The being one, the one who is. I don't know, how do you describe something that has no beginning and no end? I just am, he says. And you'll notice right away the reasons that, that these, these beasts are worshiping God are, are three things that we are not. We are not holy, we are not sovereign, we are not eternal, not in the same way that he is. And these beasts know it, and that's why they lift up their voices endlessly to worship him. Because he is worthy of it. And similar to the beasts, the elders around the throne are also worshiping God. Verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne... To him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. Now hang on. In ancient manuscripts, they didn't have bold face, they didn't have highlighters, they didn't have italicized fonts. So when they wanted to highlight something for us, they would repeat it. And here we have something being repeated over and over again, right? He sits on his throne, he sits on his throne, he sits on his throne. He lives forever and ever, he lives forever and ever. John really wants us to get that down. He is, he is worthy of our praise. But you'll notice their response. These elders, they fall down before him in response to his beauty and his majesty. And if we take a stroll, a quick stroll through Revelation, we see that, that this happens over and over again. Chapter 5, verse 8. When he had taken the book, speaking of the Lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 14, same chapter. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. Chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. We see a pattern developing. Chapter 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. One more, chapter 19, verse 4, although I'm pretty sure you know what's coming. Chapter 19, verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. These ruling elders, they, they, they seem to not be able to stay on their feet. You know, we sometimes have involuntary physical reactions to beauty, to something that is incredible. We even say it takes our breath away. You may look through a telescope on a clear night and see the stars go forever and ever. You may step up to the Grand Canyon and, and have that feeling of insignificance, that feeling of smallness. Or go to the, the Niagara Falls and see the power of the water going over. If you've ever been to a wedding and you watch the groom when his wife turns the corner, his wife-to-be turns the corner and comes around. We have these involuntary physical reactions. That might be mouth falling open, a bit of a gasp. Well, here it seems that the involuntary reaction when standing in the throne room of God is to fall on your face and worship him. It is not out of compulsion they do this. It is just out of absolute surrender and awe of him. And why are they worshiping him? Well, verse 11, this is what they're saying. Worthy are you 
our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor. You're worthy and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. They worship him simply because he's worthy and because he's the only one who is. They exalt him because he's the creator of all things. And when they stand before him, the, the natural, normal, involuntary reaction, apparently, is reverent, joy-filled, heart-wrenching exaltation of unavoidable worship. And those in heaven right now are experiencing it. And it gets personal. Because we know some of those saints, don't we? We know some of them that are standing there experiencing this. That are seeing him enthroned. That are standing and circling the throne. And that are worshipping with the throng. And while he is currently being exalted, we need to understand that we will one day join them. We will one day stand there as well and worship alongside them. Back to chapter 7 of Revelation. I read verse 9 earlier. I want to add verse 10 to this. This is where the multitude is standing there from every nation and tribe, and they're, they're in their white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands. In verse 10, And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So we have to picture our future in the present. This is the multitude of the redeemed standing before them in the circles, declaring their worship to God. And we will do that. We will stand alongside them one day. We need to understand that this is not fiction. This is not hyperbole. This is not wishful thinking. This is not some best-selling book. Well, it is a best-selling book, but for good reason. This is reality. This is happening now, all of this, and it is our future home. God is right now enthroned with power and authority. He is encircled as the focal point of the cosmos, and he is exalted as the only one who deserves to be. And we are invited here in Revelation 4 into that throne room to catch a glimpse of our future. And as that certainty grips our hearts tighter and tighter by the power of the Spirit, as the, the fog clears away and we, it crystallizes just a little bit, as God writes that vision on our minds, our hope can grow because it becomes more real, more tangible. We can, we can almost see it. We can almost touch it. It becomes so real by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as that hope grows, we begin actually to ache for that world, don't we? We increasingly find ourselves saying, along with the Apostle Peter in his epistle, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger. I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner in this world. I don't belong here. I wasn't made for this. I was made for something better. Lord, take me home. I don't want to be here anymore. Although as long as you tear and have me here, I will work for you as hard as I possibly can, but I would way rather be with you. I would rather, way rather see you stand there and join them. And that becomes the cry of our heart as this becomes more and more clear in our minds. As we push away the deceptions and the vague opinions and, and all of that garbage. Our heart cries along with Peter. And we see in John's vision here and other descriptions of heaven through Scripture and we, we, we get more and more clear, and then we open our eyes and we look around and we say, oh, this? What a contrast. What a disappointment. I mean, John had to wake up from this vision. Can you imagine that? He was there and then had to be sent back. That's a disappointment for us. We, we read these and they crystallize in our minds, and then 
We open our eyes and we just say, oh, Lord. And it's no wonder that John ends this revelation by saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make this happen now. May it be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, when we allow the Bible to shape our view of heaven, our hope and our anticipation for our future, it grows, and our pursuit of godliness in the presence is spurred on as well. Our God is the now and the future king. He's enthroned, he's encircled, and he's exalted. As we picture that scene, our anticipation can grow for that glorious God-ordained day when we will see him, when we will stand there, and when we will join in that everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This is the cry of your people. Let's pray together. Lord, these truths are at times too magnificent to believe because they're so beyond us. Not only that, but they are certainly beyond our deserving. We don't deserve to see you like that. We don't deserve to stand there and worship you. We don't deserve to, to join in. And yet, because of your grace, through our faith, in your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we have this to hope for. We ask that you would help us as your disciples, as, as Jesus' disciples, as, as your children, that you would help us to push aside the vagaries, to cling to biblical truth of what we have to look forward to, what you've laid up for us in heaven, what we are heirs of. That would motivate us, that would fill us with hope and godly anticipation. That would give us zeal in the present to to endure hardships, to endure the struggle with sin, to, to take this message to people who do not know it. It would give us zeal for the lost because of the beauty of what we're destined for and the horror that they are. Father, we thank you for this truth. We ask that you engrave it on our hearts and that we would leave here a little bit more like your son than when we walked in. For your glory we pray. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.